Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Cry Macho. We are joined by The Rewind's Clint Eastwood correspondent, Josh Brown. Josh, what is going on? Uh, Not much, my guy. I just got to, like our friend Clint, I got to get back into the saddle with you and start crying macho. You get a little emotional watching Clint on a horse again. (laughs) <laughs> it's been a while I'm, I'm guessing since the last time he actually was on a horse in a movie don't we all get emotional seeing clint and his stunt double back on the horse again <laughs> that's a fair point i was i actually did pay a lot of attention to like how the how those scenes were shot when he was on the horse and i'm i don't know i bet he would I, I bet he would have gotten on the horse if like the powers that be at warner let him on the horse but they're like look we'll give you 40 million dollars to go make whatever movie you want to make but like we're not going to be on the hook for killing you during that movie. That's where we draw the line. See, here's the thing. I think he's on the horse for a bit, but like when it starts like moving and stuff, like I think there's clear like close-ups. And, like I remember seeing like the making of Unforgiven where like uh, for like the dialogue scenes, him, Morgan Freeman, Gene Hackman, they're sitting on ladders like, um, you know, while they're pretending to be on horses or whatever. And so when you get to the close-up of Clint, like holding the set, like, you know, the handles or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, he's definitely like on a ladder or something like that. But in like far away, it's like, just <laughs> stunned them all. Um, but like, the thing is though, like it, it's kind of nerve wracking because you're like, fuck, the dude is 91 years old. Like just him just like getting on for the brief second that he was on, like, you're like the motherfucker could die this whole movie was a dangerous enterprise because he's shooting it during covid yeah this was this was this was filmed in december 2020 so i mean he might have been like a few like probably a month away from getting his covid vaccine as like an old person he'd be one of the old rich person he'd be one of the first people to get him but oh no wait principal photography began on november 4th 2020 wait, in albuquerque hold up, hold up hold up how sure are we that clint isn't like an anti-vaxxer <laughs> oh god i i mean i was gonna ha- I, I had a whole discussion because I, I feel like we probably had a, a discussion about his politics during one of the last couple pods and i just I, I did not have time to go re-listen to those pods so i mean that's certainly a it's a valid question to ask but i mean it, it look regardless of his political beliefs it, there's something that's crazy about watching one of these movies and just being like look yeah he's not like out there maybe doing all the action himself but to be that age into like star and direct a movie it's like it's fun to think about if nothing else before you even get to the merits of the movie itself well here's the thing here's the thing but also when you know about his shooting style it also both makes sense when you watch the films and then also it's like all right maybe directing isn't like the hardest thing in the world because as you know clint famously only does two takes on every scene no matter what and not only that I, this is a million dollar question for me next to was Clint vaxxed is you know how like during uh COVID we were like okay these movies that are being delayed that were in, uh, made for 2020 like Cry Macho right or actually Cry Macho was filmed during COVID I should say now that these filmmakers have a little bit more time because all their releases were getting delayed you know there was a question of what are these films would be more tightly edited right um, or they would like go back and try to refix some stuff. And, you know, the directors would have a much greater perspective on the film uh, because they're not being rushed like they normally would be trying to get the film completed by a release date, right? You know, Clint, like once he wrapped that film, once he edited it, he never looked back. <laughs> like, <laughs> so so what, what's the big question then you're saying? No, I, I'm just like, I don't, I, I, I don't even really think it's a question at all. I just think, I wonder, like, do you think at any point with, like, him having all the time to, like, edit this film, do you think he was just like, yeah, you know, we should, like, you know, like, perfect it, go back, or just, like, it was just a rush job, like, this is done, um, it's in the can, I'm ready to make my next movie, in my fifth swan song. Uh, it's impossible. <laughs> it's. I think it's hard to answer that without talking about the rest of the movie first, because I do have some things where it's like I don't think it's good, and I. I. It's hard. I think you're probably right, because there's some things that I don't think are good, and I'm pretty sure Clint can't honestly think are good if he actually didn't go back and watch. So, uh, Cry, Cry Macho is 
set in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Clint Eastwood himself plays a guy named Mike Milo, who uh, is a former rodeo star who had to retire when he got thrown off the horse and suffered a severe back injury. He, the, f- the following year, his, uh, he'd had to retire, but then like he, he was just kind of like, you know, just kind of farting around the farm, like helping out, helping out with this rodeo farm. And his boss, uh, played by Dwight Yoakam, his name is Howard Polk. He's like, all right, you're useless. I'm not going to let you work here anymore. And then it's a year later and he, uh, Howard goes and tracks him down. And is like, look, you kind of owe me. I like let you have this job for a really long time. Uh, when you really weren't any use to me, I need you to help me track down my 13 year old son who's in Mexico and he lives with his mom and he, he's just not a good situation. He's not treated well. I need you to bring him back to me. I want to ha- play a bigger part in his life. So uh, I need you to try macho. Sure. So, uh, so Clint's like, fine, I guess I'll do it. I, I don't have anything else going on. I'll go help you out. So he goes to Mexico and he, uh, somehow comes upon, uh, Howard's ex-wife's address. She lives in this big estate and she's like, well, you can, you can go find my son if you want. I don't, I don't care. He's turned to a life of crime. And she makes him sound like this really like, uh, dangerous character. And she's like, yeah, he's fighting chickens or something now. So he goes and fights him, tracks him down in a cockfight. And the kid actually is, um, not as menacing as his mom made him sound. And he's like, sure, I'll go with you. I want to meet my dad. He seems like a macho rodeo guy. And, but then sure enough, his mom changes his mind, sends some uh, rather ineffective goons after them. And then you get a road trip movie with Mike and Howard's son, whose name is Rafo, if I didn't say that. So, and you're forgetting someone else who's else on that trip with Well, them. yes. So, uh, Rafo has, uh, has a pet rooster named Macho, uh, who he had been kind of, using in the cockfights, but you know, it's not the most aggressive rooster rooster seems friendly enough and ultimately fairly useful in this movie. We'll get to that. Uh, so macho and Rafa and Mike end up going on a road trip to get back to the Texas Mexico border. Uh, and they take some interesting turns along the way through a village where they befriend some locals and, you know, and have to kind of evade some other ev- evade these hench- henchmen along the way and whatnot. Uh, Josh, you asked me beforehand. I had to be coy because I want to save my take. Uh, did you ultimately like this movie? So, like a lot of later Clint works, right? It transcends good and bad. It's just a collection of scenes that you are watching <laughs> where you can't even believe like this is on screen and you're kind of reconciling whatever views you have on Clint Eastwood and because it's Clint Eastwood and because you have this history of him and his movies and stuff, it makes whatever on screen that much more fascinating, you know, whether the scene worked or doesn't work, you know, it all kind of is mildly amusing, just sort of taking in the Clint of it all. Well, so it sounds like, well, it sounds like you think it's uh, less of a movie than, uh, the mule was and like i thought the mule was like a legitimately like solid movie yes and, yes shocking oh <laughs> uh, yeah as much as we joked about it leading up to its release like it was an entertaining well done movie and i don't think this necessarily holds together as a movie and you know the extent of me like being in disbelief that like this guy could be do- uh, that this is a movie more has to do with kind of what we discussed at the beginning where it's like oh my god like this is a 90 year old guy that is still acting and doing and putting himself in Westerns that he was like, that made him the same kind of thing that made him famous. Or, or this is a 90 year old guy who is like letting this second take of Dwight Yoakam. That's very expository. He's letting this clumsily written scene that, you know, feels like it's a rehearsal be on screen for like five minutes. And, and or like, here's Clint, like, he's dancing with this hot Mexican woman. Like, you know, <laughs> like it, 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 it's, it, it's like, or here's Clint. He's talking to this rooster. Like you're the whole time. It, 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 you're going from one perplexing scene to another perplexing scene. And it could be like really, really like terrible. And yet also kind of like charming. I'm like, yeah, Clint said this like easy corny one liner. And it's kind of amusing. So Clint has directed a few different Oscar winning performances, correct? There yes. is uh, Gene Hackman and, in Unforgiven, right? One best supporting actor. And yeah. there's Hillary Swank, Hillary Swank and Million Dollar Baby, Sean Penn and Mystic River. I'm not sure if I'm forgetting any winning ones. He's obviously, had other Tim ones. Robbins. 
Oh yeah, Tim Robbins one in Mystic River too. And Morgan uh, Freeman for Million Dollar Baby. Oh, that that that's such a weird one that he won for, huh? Yeah. Out of everything Morgan Freeman's done, kind of um, a makeup one. Yeah, so he can direct actors in good performances, but I think it, maybe it is a symptom of what you're talking about. Where at this point, he's not really like you know forcing actors to like go for anything better. Like I don't. What what is Dwight Yoakam in? I know that name, but like I don't. He he's in Panic Room where he's really good, but actually he's working with a director that has the exact opposite approach of oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so like in Panic Room, he's working with David Fincher, who's known for doing fifty takes on like you know a very simple scene, right? Oh, so um, he's a country music singer. That's why. That's why I know his name more. I yeah. guess. Um, um, okay, so uh, he's in, he's in Sling Blade. He's in okay, so actually not in that much stuff, but like. I, I, that, I mean, that character, like, it's really hard to know what to make of him, like, to your, to your point. So it's like, there's that, and it's like, all right, this guy has something in him where he can be, like, good. I don't know if the kid has that. Um, I don't know if the kid has that in him. But, like, we certainly know he didn't try enough to Dwight Yoakam because we know Dwight Yoakam has it in him. He might have just been stuck with that kid, you know? But to answer your question, to answer your question about, yeah. like, okay, how, how does Clint direct, like, these Oscar-winning performances? Like, how, like, you know even like a non-Oscar-nominated performance, like Tom Hanks and Sully, right? Like Tom Hanks is good, right? How can you direct these performances and yet also have like this kid in Cry Macho and Dwight Yoakam or the neighbors in uh, Gran Torino? I haven't watched Gran Torino in a while. I remember like, and I remember liking the kids at the time and then maybe seeing parts of it later and thinking the kids actually weren't that good. Yeah, yeah, um, they, they weren't, right? Yeah. But the reason is, Clint's approach when he's working with top tier actors like Meryl Streep or Morgan Freeman or Gene Hackman, like they like, okay, like two takes, that's all they really need. Right. Like they, they're going to, in fact, that probably, you know, kind of gets them out of their headspace and, and, you know, puts a lot of pressure on them to be good. Right. But whereas like Clint also likes to work with a lot of inexperienced actors, because we're forgetting another curiosity 1517 to Paris. Uh, <laughs> I never saw that. Oh, but in that one, he famously had the real life people play themselves uh, to disastrous but fascinating results, you know? And so the Clint method doesn't always like work in, in a movie. And then the other thing, too, is with Clint, it also feels like he takes like the rough draft of a script. So the script is written by the guy who wrote Gran Torino and The Mule. Um, but it's also like a movie that has been like, it's based off of a book and it's been passed yeah. around for like decades. Like it's almost going to be made with Arnold, which is bizarre. Yeah. I'm curious. Right. Yeah. And so it probably has been like this weird hodgepodge of different drafts, which that's what it kind of feels like on screen where you're kind of ambling through different scene to scene and it's kind of weirdly inconsistent. But that being said, the other thing about Clint that is both his weakness and his strength is the weird simplicity that he brings to all his films where again, like he's not trying hard. It's kind of unpretentious. Um, and like the meals, an excellent example of that, where you can imagine in any other hands, that premise, like you could see a more kinetic version of that film, but like Clint's like simple approach to it kind of works for it but com but com uh, yeah but compared to this like yeah the mule is kinetic as hell um, <laughs> speaking of the clip method I, you know what you want to know my like initial take was like it took me a lot of restraint to like not text it to you after the movie my thing was you know what would have made this movie instead of a two and a half star movie like a three and a half star movie more mannequins and more threesomes you know? <laughs> because infamously he just couldn't be bothered with having casting an actual baby in American Sniper. And that just became like such a huge talking point. And everyone's like, oh, my God, this is just ridiculous. Like, like, I can't believe like they really did this. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I would have rather just like had a mannequin instead of this kid who's a terrible actor. And we know Clint is good at talking to inanimate objects because we saw that at the 2012 Republican National Convention, you know, so. I think we could have just had him just talking to like, I don't know, just some little puppet who would have been less distracting because this kid was just could not act for shit. And yeah, which is also what another great thing about Clint weirdly is like, no matter who he's up against, like um, whether it's a good actor like Gene Hackman or an inexperienced one, like the kid, like Clint himself is good. at. He's reacting. still a good actor, isn't he? Like yeah. he's still a good actor in spite of it all. Like all the, all the jokes aside, like, 
I like watching him act. That is what makes this movie worth the price of admission. It's and it, it, I think it goes beyond like the the fact that like there's just something inherently interesting about watching someone that can still function at this age and like lead a movie. Like he's actually pretty interesting as a character. I mean, I don't know if the character is that much different from the guy he's playing in the Mule. Like it was almost hilarious. Yeah, when you're like struggling with pronouncing his name, I'm just like, you could just call him Clint. We could just like, cause that's what you really the character is. It's just the stand-in for Clint. Sure, Eastwood. sure. I, I should Milo, Milo. Who cares? Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh no, I'm I'm only calling him Clint for sure. Yeah. Uh, and so like, again, I really like watching him act, and I think that's cool. And he could have done it against a mannequin that would have been like less distracting than this really bad kid. As far as the threesomes, look, I think there is something to be said for like. Yeah, I guess there's something nice about these scenes that he, they have in this cafe with this woman and all these random girls that are just like some deaf seven-year-old girls, some other 15-year-old girl that's there to kind of be a love interest for Rafo. Like, there's something sweet about some of those scenes. But I just can't help but think, like, why do they have to force this as a romantic interest upon us? I couldn't help but Google the, the this actress during the movie, and it's, she's a full 40 years younger than Clint. And it's like... I, I would have rather you just had some random threesomes. At least we can get a laugh out of that. Instead, I'm like cringing at the fact that you're romancing a woman 40 years your junior. Wait, by the way, so that aspect, right, has been consistent with Clint's career as an as a screen presence, like since the beginning, right? Where like ever since like in the 70s, right? I mean, his directorial debut is Play Misty for Me, right? Which is like a a proto fatal attraction right and it's about this girl who's just like obsessed with him who's stalking him and killing him like wants to kill him and also i think the same year that that his directorial debut comes out uh he makes the original beguiled which is like him as this soldier who's caught in this woman's uh house with a bunch of these uh girls and they're all attracted to clint eastwood right and i feel like he, now in his older age he continues to have to remind us like yeah I can still get laid. So hmm. that's why, like, it's not just one threesome in the meal. It's two. <laughs> and then when you get to this movie, you have, like, uh, the ex-wife trying to seduce him. And, and like, it's Clint, like, 91. Clint girl. wants you to know he he's confident enough and getting in it as an own. He can say no to that. <laughs> yeah, he does. And he moves on to another Mexican woman that's half his age in the movie. Now, is it gross to a certain extent? Yes. But you kind of have to admire the I don't give a fuck attitude. Sure, sure. I do. But it's like, it was just distracting. It's like, if, if that actress had been like 60 years old instead of 50 years old, like I could hey, even get behind that. Here's the thing. I was going to give Clint some credit, right? Because I'm guessing like the, the, the main love interest of the movie, the waitress, right? I'm guessing yeah. she's in her 50s, right? Yeah, she, I looked it up. She's like 50, 51 or 50, like 51. So probably okay, like 50 okay, okay. Now, 40 years younger than Clint because fucking Clint is a dinosaur, right? <laughs> but, but, all right. That is still older than what like a Tom Cruise love interest would be. Sure, I mean, uh, I guess like Rebecca Ferguson <laughs> in like the Mission Impossible movies is like in her late thirties, and Tom's in his like fifties. Remember so. the most egregious one, which was an American Made, where it's like I think like the girl is like in her twenties, and like Tom Cruise is in his like late fifties, you know. But all I'm saying is, you know. Not a great defense for Clint. Girl American Made is 21 years younger than Tom Cruise. She was so she would have been like around in her in her early 30s when they filmed that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Clint, he's like, all right, I, I can't go that low. I can't go that low. He <laughs> yeah, but he's also 30 years older than Tom Cruise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, by the way, quick question: which one you think is still gonna be around making movies for the next like 20 years? Well, no, I mean like Tom Cruise will like die jumping out of a helicopter in a movie. I think the question is like, you know, can, well, does, Tom, does Tom Cruise make it to this age because he's like doing crazier shit than Clint ever did? Assuming he's alive, he's going to like do it as long as he's going to be do the Clint thing without the directing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe like the secret to like Clint's longevity is like making sure that the movie is like wrapped before lunch or that he stays on horses instead of like gets into helicopters or on motorcycles. <laughs> like Tom Cruise has it like in his contract, he has to ride a motorcycle in every movie. Whereas like, you know, Clint, Clint, like, like a horse, like, I mean, to like disguise the stunt double. Sure. Sure. 
<laughs> so, yeah, I, I think there, there's 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 something there's something there as far as the, the parallels between the two of them. But yeah, I mean, look, I, I think getting back to the movie, though, I think it's just look that that's that stuff was weird with the age difference. I mean, I don't you don't maybe don't need to dwell on it that much. because It's only part of the movie. But like I thought about it. It's just like I was like, oh, why would you have to go there? And then with the kid. Look, if you're going to make a road trip movie with a kid, find a good actor for the kid. Like, it's that simple. And I don't know how involved Clint is it with the casting process. I, I get the impression probably not that much unless it's like he wants Bradley Cooper to show up and then Bradley Cooper will show up for him. But beyond that, like, I think it's like everything's set up for him to show up and start like to sit in the director's chair. It's all there. So I'm, I don't necessarily blame him for the kid not being better. I bet that's on the casting director. Well, like- you know, actually, I think that would be a Clint issue. I think that's specific to Clint because we have seen this many times when he's working with uh, less experienced actors. It's like so because you, so, you, so regardless of if the kid is as good as this kid is, you think of another director it's like, I'll do 10 takes instead of two. There's, yeah. They're going to get something more out of this kid. I think so. I think like I think it would be you maybe not great. And actually, here's the thing: I the kid kind of like worked on me for you know like I I, I kind of I, I was willing to kind of put past his flaws because to me it's just like him bouncing off of Clint and Clint's doing his work and this is still at the end of the day a Clint showcase, you know. Um, and and again, I, and I agree the the kid is wobbly throughout. But I do think that is more on Clint than the kid, um, where I think if, like in another director's hands, like they would have gotten a more uh, serviceable performance. That's fair, it. I guess. I, I just kept. I it's kept not thinking, just the kid that sucks. Dwight Yoakam sucks. Like there are. Yeah, that- he's yeah. It's just it's not as noticeable because he's just not in it as much, I guess. I just I couldn't help but think the whole time about the first movie we ever did a podcast on, which is Sicario Day the Soldado, a movie mm-hmm. I did not like. But mm-hmm. like that movie kind of like introduced us to uh, Isabella Monet, who yeah. is like actually like gone on to like do cool things like Instant Family and the Door of the Explorer movie, which is Loki good. Uh, listen, to which the- by the way, I would love to see her bounce off of Clint. The, well, no, now I don't. I, let me take that back because I don't want Clint to get any ideas from that. Um- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, but there's, I mean, like, if she hadn't been in Sicario 2, which is like, has a lot of similarities to this movie, and that yeah. is just like two, two, a young, a young person and an old person on a road trip. No, Benicio's not that old. But like, you get what I mean? Like, it's not uh, the same in like those people having to go around, having to go around like these just very rural parts of Mexico. Then, like, man, I think this is like an incredible movie, incredible movie if it has her, as long as Clint doesn't write some certain things into the script. Uh, yeah, and by the way, like, I feel like this movie is somewhat like, you know, it feels like this might be the last Clint Eastwood movie, but I think we probably said that during the mule. Um, uh, <laughs> we probably hope that. Do, during- do you actually think that? I mean, by the time, like, by the time, like, we were, by the next time we're recording a podcast, like, they're going to have announced his next one that's going to have, like, filmed in time for, like, a summer to 2022 release. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's another farewell. Um, it's like, this is my last Western um uh because remember it was like uh trouble with the curve that was supposed to be his like last screen performance thank actually, god it wasn't yeah actually he said that for gran torino as well so um anyway we keep saying goodbye to clint but uh th- but i feel like this movie is sort of like an amalgamation of all his other movies right like he has done like a road movie several times before with the mule and a perfect world um he loves sort of uh having like these father figures like bounce off of, you know, a much younger counterpart, whether it's like something like the rookie or a million dollar baby um, or unforgiven and sort of like the elderly wise character kind of has to, you know, tell the young person why this like toxic masculinity is like kind of bullshit, which is sort of the theme of this movie. And you think Clint's getting a little woke in his old age? Hey, remember there is this actually here's the weird this with this is what makes Clint Eastwood kind of fascinating um as a filmmaker in contrast to his public image, right? So he's probably the most revered and most notable conservative or Republican in Hollywood circles, right? right. The, like one of the few Republican filmmakers that you know has like a career of worth, right? And not only that, but like his movies, if you look at the politics of his films they're kind of murky like they're they're weird they're not as jingoistic as you would think like the american sniper a movie that got a lot of heat when it came out like when you watch that movie it ref- again it's funny the 
his 2012 Republican uh, convention address got weirdly relevant again, because in that address, people kind of forget the thing that he's criticizing Obama for the most is us still being in Afghanistan. And American Sniper, you know, reflects like sort of his libertarian anti-war views, um, where he's very vehemently opposed to um, our Middle East, Middle Eastern wars. And then not only that, but like a theme that runs through all his films are sort of, you know, us valorizing violence and like the men that actually have to carry it out and that have been mythologized uh, for their past violent acts, like kind of reckoning and, and, and trying to distance themselves uh, from their image, right? And the weird thing about this movie, kind of like The Mule, I feel like it's weirdly like a pro-immigrant film. Um, like, you know, like, I, like, I, you know, like, I think, you know, his, I feel like the f politics of his films are a little bit more complex than I think the baggage he carries as a public persona, as someone who's, you know, politically outspoken as a conservative. Yeah, that's fair. I never got that strong of a vibe. Like, I think a lot of people, like, I understand why the inclination, what there was, I understand why there was that inclination to have that response to American Sniper, but I, I kind of, I haven't rewatched that movie in a while, but I think my take, if I did, would probably be more like what you're saying now, where it's like, especially with how that movie ends, it's, I, I, I don't think it's saying, I, I think it's pretty clear it's saying war is not good for these dudes. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of the subtlety is through Cooper's performance. Right. Yeah. He's he, and he yeah he's very good. The the thing that I wrote down though while watching uh this movie, it, like I just keep in like a notes app thing on my phone, which I don't always do at the movies because like I'm very considerate and I don't take my phone out in the movies unless I'm yeah. literally the only person in the theater. Which which was I was the only. Uh, There's me and one other person down below. Like yeah. So I, I I felt safe doing that at mine. And I the one of the one of the bullet points I wrote on my notes app was yay no casual racism because <laughs> 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 i just come off i i, I was like hey man like i clint's actually a blind spot for me as much as uh you and i've talked about in the last few years i need to watch another at least one other old clip movie before you do this so i watched the outlaw josie wales and mm -hmm. he's a confederate I, soldier in that right that that was a little uncomfortable that it's like are we trying to like you know Feel a little sympathy for the Confederate side, though. Like it's the object. Some this Union group in the movie does some objectively horrible things. So, you know that's murky or whatever. But like, there's actually an exchange in that movie which I watched like within a day of watching. Uh, within it, which I watched within a day of watching Crime Macho. There's an exchange in that movie where a uh, where one of the characters uh refers to a white character refers to Native Americans by the uh now uh grossly um uh or now rightly criticized our word that uh, a now professional football team has had to give up people understand how bad of a slur it is and one of the native americans characters says like no it's okay i get it <laughs> <laughs> so i come right off of watching that i have some memories of gran torino and this how so much of the uh anti-asian language and that was played for laughs and i'm like and I, you know, and you know what? I don't remember if there was anything like that in the meal, but it wouldn't shock me if there was. But no, no, there is, there is. Remember, um, there's this scene where um, it's it comes out of nowhere. It's where the main character is driving on the road. And it's he Clint. Sees you, yeah, yeah, Clint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still Clint. It's the same Clint, like you already said. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Clint is uh, driving, and he sees this black couple that um, they have like a flat or whatever, and um, uh. You know, so he pulls over to the side of the road to help them. And I forgot the exact line, but it was like they're like thanking him or whatever. And then he like says like some type of racial slur. And then like, um, does he call them Negroes? Know. No, yeah, like that. yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like something like, I uh, think you colored people. Like, I forgot what it, it oh, was. Yeah, but... I, I know. I remember the moment you're talking about now. So it's like, I mean, so there, there's nothing like that in this movie, which kind of jumped out. To oh, me. Like, yeah. Oh. And remember also the meal you're forgetting, not a racial epithet, but uh, a, 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 homo <laughs> a homophobic one is where he sees um, the uh, the female biker group, uh, like they're lesbians or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, he's bonding with them and he calls them uh, uh, the D word, you know. Um, oh, very nice. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so, it's, it's supposed to be like, see, despite their differences, they're getting along. They're both tough talking, you know. I'm sure Clip probably likes Green Book, honestly. Oh, actually, 100%, 100%. He definitely voted for it for Best Picture. Ranked it one on his but, ballot. Quick, by the way, have you seen on HBO Max? They have like the Clint curated favorites. Um, and one of them is The Hangover. And like uh, my buddy, uh, who's a huge Clint Eastwood fan, was like, no way Clint Eastwood likes The Hangover. And I'm like, nah, he most definitely likes The Hangover. A, he's cast Bradley Cooper several times now. B, I think he probably laughs at the politically incorrect humor. Like, <laughs> I did not know that that was a thing on uh, HBO Max. I'm going to have to go look at that. I'm curious. He likes Shawshank. He's a huge Christopher Guest fan. Like, there's Best in Show. He's a man of many multitudes, Clint. HBO Max, great service as far as its selection. Hard to navigate. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I, I, mean I, like, I like how they have, like, the, oh, cl- click here for DC, click here for Warner Classics or whatever. Uh, but, like, it's it, that they even got away from that. Like, it's hard to find, like, different categories like i i've been scanning the page for like you know a good minute now and i can't find this quint collection so i'm gonna have to have you help me with that but i'm curious to like under i, I did not know they were doing stuff like that on the service so that's cool um yeah and also they're going all out for clint because uh uh it, this is supposed to be like his 50th year directing and so they announced that like they're putting back like dirty harry bridges madison county unforgiven in the theater and they have like these different like you know, um, videos of celebrities talking about Clint and what his work means to them. Um, so you have like the actors he's working with compliment him and you have like his directing peers be like, yeah, you know, Clint, he's always under budget, under schedule. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but like the thing with like Clint is like, you know, he is like this director um, uh, who's who is idiosyncratically like an artist. Like, here's the thing. I used to be very dismissive of Clint Eastwood as a director because growing up, I kind of just knew him as making these like prestige films, like, you know, like Jay Edgar or whatever. And, and, and it's a lot of them either not being good or not being interesting, like Invictus and, you know, the stuff that people did like and that were, you know, okay, like Mr. River, Million Dollar Baby. I was like, I don't see any director coming up that's going to be influenced by Clint Eastwood as a director. Like who cites Clint Eastwood as like their favorite director, you know? And so what kind of made me turn around on Clint um, was going back and watching like his 70s stuff, like Outlaw Josie Wales or High Plains Drifter and just him as a movie star, um, like, you know, like his work with Sergio Leone and Don Siegel. I, I was like, fuck him from like 67 to like the end of the 80s, both as a director and actor. I think his work is pretty dynamite, but also like going back to like now his later stuff, I now had a little bit more context and I could see like a thorough line of like, okay, this is a guy who has, you know, even if the filmmaking is not always the most inspired, there's a lot of like idiosyncrasies about Clint, um, such as the political messages of his films and also the recurring themes of like, violence and how you know we overvalorize it and like the men who have to live with the guilt of carrying the violent acts and stuff like that and also just like just weird shit like all the, his films like have this weird dark monochrome like look to it or whatever you know there are certain films where like clint is the composer and so he has like this jazz score to it um and so there's a weird poetic grace underlining a lot of Clint's work even amidst some of the goofier elements and like Cry Macho I think is not as sublime as say the mule but there are moments of it that like hit some of those grace moments especially the scenes where he's talking to the rooster <laughs> well as far as the uh I mean his filmmaking if you look at that early stuff you were just referencing I don't have as many reference points but like I guess I, I I really do want to go back and watch a few of them because now Outlaw Josie Wales is really the only one he directed pre for Unforgiven that I've seen now. And mm-hmm. one thing that did strike me about that because I was iffy on it for a lot of the movie was that the I thought the action in it was like legitimately good. And I'm someone who is like not I mean, it's a little unbelievable in that like a lot of these people turn out to be like excellent marksmen at the end of the movie when you probably 
shouldn't be. But like, you know, a lot of times gunfights just don't really do it for me in movies. You know, I think it's hard to make them like really as interesting as they are like in Westerns where you got people in the quick draw. And I thought some of the stuff at the end of Outlaw Josie Wills is actually like pretty compelling and like actually pr- about as excited as I can get for just a shootout. And yeah, no, no. Like his 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 stuff in the 70s, whether it's outlaw outlaw Josie Wells and uh, high plane drifters, the westerns that he made during that time, or some of the dirty hairy films that he directed, like Magnum Force or Sudden Impact, um, or even Play Misty, like uh Play Misty for me, which is a thriller. He he was a very good visceral filmmaker. Like he could do really good action set pieces, and I think that is because he worked under Don Siegel and Sergio Leone as an actor. And those are two of the finest action filmmakers to ever live. So like, like, and you can see that influence in his work, but like, I would say in probably the latter half of his career, like the post unforgiven uh, part of his career where he's making more of these like prestige dramas. I think that's where Clint kind of comes in as his own, as a filmmaker. And I think, you know, something like Bridges of Madison County is closer to his sensibilities now than even say like an Unforgiven. I yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd say that's true given the I don't know the the melancholy vibe and the the lesser amount of action that these last couple have had. I guess my question for you is going to be given your whatever uh, misgivings you have about this, and, and we'll, we'll just spoil it now. We actually didn't really give any spoilers so far, so gave people plenty to talk to listen to, and uh, I think they get the vibe that like we still think this is a, a worthwhile experience to have, even if it's not high art. And so I'll ask you, it'll still uh, make you cry, Macho. <laughs> oh, we we got we got to talk more about Macho actually, but uh, <laughs> but. I guess at the knowing what you're saying and how like, hey you, you've found some you know stuff since Bridges of Madison County on to appreciate in Clint's work, uh, would you have rather seen 90 year old Clint whip out a gun from his jacket in that in, in that last scene as opposed to uh, Macho saving the day? Would that to have some kind of like would, would it have been like almost too goofy to have 90 year old Clint like trying to convince him us he's any more of an action star than he actually is? Or would that have been like, oh, that's something cool. That's something worth seeing. That's something a little more kinetic than anything they're doing. Or would it have taken too many smoke and mirrors of someone that old? And you were just as happy to have like this entire movie turn on a rooster jumping out of a car at the right time. Oh, so here's the thing. Like, again, that kind of goes to the heart and themes of Clint's movies, which is, you know, and again, in, to the heart of this film, where it's basically him go, his characters going against like their image and, and this idea of machismo that we have, right? And so it feels more fitting, actually, that it's a rooster instead of a gun, because, and that is Clint, you know, the whole, like, again, that's the thing with like Clint in the movies that he stars in. It's like he's forcing us to wrestle with his image as a movie star each time and so we have these expectations that he's willing to subvert and that's what kind of makes the film a little bit interesting and also it as i was saying earlier that this does feel like an amalgamation of like all his other films um again like one of his early box office hits as a director um or as a movie star is the film that he was consistently mocked for which is anyway with uh, anyway with uh any way uh but loose where he's acting opposite of a chip you know Hmm. so we kind of have gone full circle with clint acting opposite of an animal as his co-star and probably actually the animal being a better co-star than some of the (laughs) he has to work with um but you know you brought up something kind of interesting which is what's kind of wild about this film is that it's happening you know during the height, you know, like this might be the last Clint Eastwood film we ever see, right? It's possible given his age, right? and it's released. And we don't know his vaccination status. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and so, um, you know, what's weird about it? It's like it was dumped on HBO Max, right? It's they're doing a day and date release, right? Like they're doing with the rest of their catalog, right? And that, you know, thinking about, you know that Clint has been in the movie industry since the 1950s. That is kind of wild that like even Clint, you know, is not immune to like the forces that be in this changing um, environment. And I think we were talking about this before we went on mic, which is like, you know, you looked at the box office gross of this film, 
and looked at the box office gross of like Richard Jewell, which kind of underperformed, but kind of broke even-ish, right? You're like, how come like Warner Brothers keeps giving him money? And it's like, that's the thing with kind of Clint Eastwood is that no matter what is happening in Hollywood and the types of movies that they're making, like, you know, he doesn't direct IP, you know, except for like stuff that are based off of like a book, you know, like Bridges of Madison County. He's not like making superhero movies that even like Robert Redford has to join the Marvel mm-hmm. Cinematic. Like, but for the most part, he's not like doing like big franchise, yeah. like special effects driven yeah, shit, yeah, yeah. like like some of, you know, his contemporaries or what is happening in the markets. And yet the last non-franchise film to be the highest grossing film of the year uh, for its year was American Sniper in the year 2014. Like, he's one of the few people to have dethroned, like, a Marvel movie in the past decade. Um, And it's kind of weird that, like, you know... And again, like, with Clint Eastwood, his filmography isn't that exceptional, like, the stuff that he's directed. Like, you know, you're not really talking about his movies with maybe the exception of Unforgiven um, in the context of, like, oh, these are some of the greatest movies ever. We kind of talk about his movies in the context of like Clint Eastwood movies. Like we're kind of ranking, all right, was solely better than, you know, Gran Torino and The Changeling. You know what I mean? Um, um, and But it's kind of interesting that he's kind of been inoculated from um, the forces that surround, you know, the rest of Hollywood up until this point where even his film is being dumped kind of unceremoniously on HBO Max. I still think the fact that they gave him $33 million to do this during the pandemic, uh, pre-vaccine, like, and like all these other points you're saying do show he is like, at least to this point, he has been somewhat immune to some of the changing tides. Like, we don't know if it's going to last though. And that's the thing with Clint too. The thing with Clint is like, you know, his movies don't cost that much. He's one of the few directors that are still making mid-budget movies for adults, right? The thing that has kind of gone extinct, especially during the streaming age, right? And the thing with Clint is like with Warner Brothers, he has this relationship with them where like, all right, maybe this like 1517 to Paris doesn't work, but, you know, every three Clint Eastwood movies, you're going to have a outsized hit like American Sniper or Soli or Gran Torino. Like he makes them every few years that one of them will click. And you kind of are surprised which ones are the ones that, you know, do click, you know? And so I think that's what kind of, and, and the reason why I kind of bring that up a little bit, it's what's also happening that was announced this month was that Christopher Nolan was ending his relationship with Warner Brothers and making his first movie uh, for Universal Pictures. Whereas like, Clint Eastwood famously is a Warner Brothers guy. He makes all his movies for Warner Brothers. Well, I was actually and- just clicking through it a little bit when we were talking before. So he he actually kind of like rotated a bit between Universal and Warner's early in his directing career, but then everything after Josie Wells on was Warner's. Yeah, yeah. I believe Play Misty for me is not a Universal one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so um, like, and I was thinking about like, you know, I think you and I have discussed like off mic that like Nolan's move is kind of stupid because like Warner Brothers did everything for him in regards to the release of Tenet. And it probably would have been a greater financial success if he wasn't so adamant about it being the first film uh, to come out during COVID. But wow. that it's is- been almost exactly a year since Tenet. Like, <laughs> he, he, he tried to force it at that point. And like, we're like, you know, better off with COVID at this point, as, like as far as like the numbers, like he thought he was going to like really be the one to be the start of things then. <laughs> yeah but like you know I, and one of the reasons why i think it's kind of his decision is kind of dumb is because you know to have the rare backing from a studio to the, um to be a, in that position to be afforded you know full studio backing for whatever the fuck you want um kind of like clint eastwood i think in the long term would be beneficial because a they're going to be protective of your library of films that you made for them the same way, like, you know, right now, Warner Brothers is going to go out and re-release some of uh, Clint's, like, more famous and iconic movies as part of their, like, celebration of his 50th year directing. And, you know, it also, like, allows Clint to make some of these weird idiosyncratic movies, like them, hate them. Like, 1517 to Paris, 
that's a weird movie. He just made a someone's home video. Like he mm. made someone's vacation movie. <laughs> um, and and so I think, you know, it was a big mistake in uh, for Nolan, uh, given the success that like someone who also is in his position, like Eastwood, has kind of thrived on having that type of relationship. I guess they'll probably like, I mean, I would think if he wants to do something, like they'll write off the box office on this one and give him another chance if there's the right script. And maybe even if there isn't the right script, like I, it just seems like he has that cachet for whatever reason with them. And even, even though the mule didn't make money or no, no, I bet the mule did make, I mean, Richard yeah, Jewell, the sorry, mule Richard was Jewell. a hit. The mule yeah, was yeah. A, put respect on the mule's name. Sorry. I, I got that confused with Richard Jewell. Like we mentioned earlier, but I, I'm sure the, the mule, mule actually... was hustling that money out of Mexico. <laughs> well, so what, there's a scene later on in Crime Macho where I was like, "Oh my God, is it going to be like the Mule Two Electric Boogaloo? If they're going to find, uh, they're going to find drugs in his seat anyway, and will have just been a drug mule for the second straight movie that he acted." And, and by the way, like I think you and I probably would have preferred him ending on the Mule. Like that's the perfect high note to end on. And you know, Clint's getting up there in years, and famously for directors, like their final movie more often than not is garbage you know and here's the thing i think you would probably say you're kind of cold on cry macho and i'm like it's barely okay like there's enough you know um i'll say it's not garbage so it's got that going for it yeah exactly right and so you know i would have preferred the meal being the high note and to be honest like richard jewell is i think a better movie too um but I think this is kind of like, I'd be okay with this as like a final swan song, you know? I kind of like its sort of amble nature, kind of carefree, relaxed, like, you know, not kind of giving a fuck tone, which seems like a fitting end. Sure. I, I'm, look, I, again, I'm, <laughs> I wish I could say I was a greater movie, but I still think it's a great accomplishment for Clint that he's able to do this. And, <laughs> didn't die doing it like and- you look at this movie the same way we look at like the stunt in mission impossible of like tom cruise hanging from the plane or running down the bridge a brief uh right the whole movie is an mission stunt. impossible stunt <laughs> yeah it's clint eastwood's running down the bridge khalifa i'm totally uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm there with you on it maybe i'm not quite as high on it as you but like I, and i'm barely high on it let's, let's be clear like <laughs> this is a great movie okay no but like um, when, when we first saw the trailer and the first still which i mean his his face just moves less now than it did even three years ago it's just it's just a fact <laughs> and there's no shame he's 90 years old but like there's like one of the moments where he's like sitting by the campfire and he's like look at his face it looked like it was like almost like a cgi old person and i so when you all you've seen is like a still and then a goofy trailer look you can't blame anyone that has low expectations and it exceeded that level for me so even if that even if that shot of him laying by the campfire white as ash was like still exactly how it looked in the first images that got released i was like all right this is still like way better than i ever would have expected even if it's still not great see i just thought that image of him by the campfire was kind of beautiful and sweet (laughs) (laughs) like here's the thing i think clint eastwood has broken me at this point you know where I went from, you know, fuck this boring ass filmmaker to like, yo, look how look how magnificently simple <laughs> and boring he can be. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, um, and so like, you know, there's like, you know, and they're like, he the whole movie he's like cracking these one liners, and they're kind of like corny, you know, for him. Like, you know, he has that bit where he's like. A man who names his cock uh, macho, I guess it like, you know, goes without saying or something like that or whatever. And I'm like, look, easy line, but also just deliver it well. Like, what can you say? Yeah, I mean, I, even the speech he's giving at the end where he's like, they'll kind of giving the thesis of the movie that being macho is not all it's cracked up to be. But you do got to man up and like decide what you're going to do here. Are uh, you going to go with your dad that might not really actually care about you or whatever? Like, I mean, he's still good at it. Like, again, he's acting across like this, you know, kid that he didn't really take the time to like get a good performance out of. But like, 
it's still it's still fine like watching it's still good watching him do his thing if nothing else and that's why like i say this movie is ultimately like worth the price of admission uh do you have any other final thoughts on cry macho josh no i think i you know actually i'm kind of sad that i this movie didn't make me cry macho like i really wanted to go in you know, and I was in a theater with one other person. I might have gotten emotional knowing what we know about Clint and the, the whatever this level of affection you and I have for him is. And that, look, it might be his last movie because we don't know if he's vaccinated. Uh, I might have cried if they if he had cast like an appropriately aged woman instead of a 50 year old woman. If he cast a 65 year old woman as like this as, as this barkeeper. Because like when he goes back Actually, to her no, at the I end. Emotional because one of the final shots in the movie is him just dancing with this woman in this cafe and how it's lit. I I actually did get a little bit emotional seeing him dance with this woman, and, you know, and also it's tame, like he's not making it out with her. Or anything well, he like was kind of kissing her earlier in the movie. It's implied that, like, look, yeah, she's, yeah, yeah. She's, she's inexplicably into him. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is true. That is true. But just them dancing in the final shot in this warmly lit like cafe. Again, I, I would have been know. I would have been invested enough as them in them as a couple if she'd just been a little more age appropriate, and then maybe I would have gotten emotional because that would have been a beautiful way for Clint's film career to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. But you know, <laughs> I don't know. I get. I guess like here's my take. Right. I think this movie should have just been like fifteen, seventeen. Uh, to Paris, except it's just Clint like going on vacation and hanging out in Europe, <laughs> eating gelato, you know, stopping a train fight. And I think I would be even more satisfied as that as a final swan song. But as it's also as, a little weird that it's like him going back to Mexico is supposed to be the emotional ending when it's like, just as we're not sure about his vaccination status, what, do we really want to know how he feels about the border? You know, I think, here's the thing with this and the mule, right? I don't think he has an issue with the people on the other side of the border, you know, because yeah, when, when, when he can use them to get drugs or uh, further his own economic agenda, like when this guy's paying him to go get a kid. Or which, someone... by the way, why would you send 91 year old cookies <laughs> with you just fired to go rescue your kid? Because oh, it didn't work with the two other. Like it, didn't, it didn't work. It didn't work with the two other guys. He was out of options. Also, going with a picture going with a picture when the kid was like five and the kid's now like a teenager and like Clint Eastwood is like 91 year old I think he's like like half blind and he has to pick out this one Mexican kid the first Mexican kid he sees this happens to match the five-year-old in the picture yeah <laughs> it seems like a bad plan yeah I mean they could have just had like a a, a, a nine-year-old mannequin I would have I would have bought the mistake just as much <laughs> you know Clint probably would have considered it if like the kid didn't show up to work one day he like again that's what <laughs> happened with the fake that is what happened with the fake baby from American Sniper the baby didn't show up that day and they could have waited the next day to have the replacement baby and he's like no <laughs> we're gonna shoot I'm this. getting in under budget don't <laughs> yeah. to, we don't have to pay this like six month old scale until he's like the rest of his life if we just put a baby a doll in you know when Matt Damon was like promoting Stillwater, uh, which was a very successful promotional tour, right? And um, I kid because that's the promotional tour. It's a terrible promotional tour. Solid <laughs> yeah. movie, though. Terrible promotional tour. Yeah, no. And I was, I remember like as it was wrapping up, I was like, wow, Matt Damon didn't say anything cringy this time. He's really like learned his lesson. <laughs> um, but when he was Matt Damon said more cringy stuff than the MAGA guy he played in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not full on MAGA. He couldn't vote, remember? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But um, and let, actually, let's give it credit to Clint. He can do a successful promo tour without saying and shit at 91, unlike Matt Damon. Um, but that being said, uh, Matt Damon gave this anecdote about when he was on Evictus and how difficult the South African accent is and like, you know, he had put a lot of work in it and he was nervous about like um, if he was nailing it because it's so difficult of an accent to crack. And so on set of Invictus, you know, after a take, like Matt's like, hey, can I try that again? You know, also knowing that Clint only does very few takes, you know, and Clint says, you can, you know, but you just be wasting everybody's time. <laughs> 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 no like in the little like uh warner brothers like compilation of like the celebrities talking about him meryl streep was saying like 
yeah no like sometimes he'll just use the rehearsal footage uh like we, i just thought we were rehearsing and he'll use that as the take in the movie i mean <laughs> I, I, I mean you know, it, if it works for quinn it works fine it, it, the product could be a lot worse for someone that takes that approach as you mentioned earlier the movie looks pretty good i mean yeah. i guess his dp is solid but like you know uh the fact that he does operate like that and the movies are like I mean, again, I didn't see 15, half 17. Half the time good, half the time runaway disasters. Yeah, again, I didn't, I, I didn't watch the 15, 17. So maybe I'm only watching the stuff that's like kind of at least at, at least the level of crime watch up. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Josh, anything else you've been watching recently you want to shout out before we sign off? Oh, I just finished Fleabag. Wow, you're a little late to that. Did, did, you, en- did you enjoy it as much as ever- you'd heard everyone else enjoyed it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And it was like, see, with me with television, I'm pretty late to everything. And so I can only really watch shows that are, you know, like six episodes, two seasons, you know. So mm, that was the, the uh, perfect length for you then, huh? Yeah. Like, in, you know, I finished White Lotus. Um, I guess like the next thing I have to move on to is Ted Lasso. But given the speed of which I catch up with TV, it'd be like three years from now. And then I'd be like, Oh, so this is the season two that people were complaining about. Okay. Yeah. The only other thing I've watched recently, well, also, I mean, look, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a little bit of a stereotype at this point that like white people are going to tell you you should watch Ted Lasso, but like Ted Lasso is really good. Uh, But the the only thing I've watched recently that like I, that I haven't already, like people want to have already heard a podcast on at this point that I liked is uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, which he already talked about. So I don't really have anything to plug actually. Cause like, as of now, I'm not, I've been watching on a new TV. I think I'd already mentioned reservation dogs on the pod. And, uh, and beyond that, I'm just like rewatch, trying to rewatch as much of the Sopranos as I can before the many saints in Newark. So, which I've already talked about too. So that's just kind of like taking up a lot of my time. So By the way, who's your Sopranos guy? Uh, I, um, probably, uh, my friend Graham, cause he was in the middle of a rewatch. He's, he's usually kind of the guy for thrillers, but he's like, He'd been talking to me about it for a while now. He'd been in the middle of a rewatch as well, so he's kind of. Oh okay, yeah, that's good because it's it, I, like you know it's been a it's been since college since I last watched The Sopranos, so mm. it's not as fresh or whatever. But you know, you know which podcast you're going to call me in. Well, I know you wanted West Side Story, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know if the, I mean that's still we're still three months out from that, so maybe we'll come across something else. So maybe between... we'll make something in between. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly like either like I look if if, if I said like. Look, you have to bet your life that like neither Clint Eastwood nor Steven Soderbergh are going to have a movie before the end of the year. Like you probably wouldn't feel totally comfortable with that bet, you know? Yeah, no, like actually Soderbergh, like I remember like there was like, he's like, I got three things brewing. I got a sex lies and videotape sequel. I got this TV show that I made during COVID. I got um, a recut Kafka, like, yeah, like in which he just released the re-edited version of Kafka at one of the film festivals. So yeah, like I, I actually, by the way, and here's also this year, um, we have two Ridley Scott movies coming out, I think the same month. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd, uh, I, I have someone for House of Gucci. I don't have anyone for Last Duel, but I'm really not sure how I feel about even like touching that movie. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel like, I feel like, I mean, I, I feel like I would, I would have to figure out, I would have to find a woman that would also want to join for that. Cause that you just can't have two dudes talking about that. Uh, but I don't, you I don't know who that would Damon be. and Affleck. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that would not be like a cringy conversation. Oh my God. I want to, I want to hear them talk about the politics of like two men fighting about a woman that was allegedly raped and having to defend her honor. Uh, yeah. gosh. Yeah. No, especially I believe like one of the Twitter memes was like when one rises, the other one falls. So right now Affleck's on the rise with JLo. <laughs> with his press um, tours and his uh, weird ass mullet he's wearing in that movie oh by the way do you remember the year 2017 when it was clint eastwood spielberg and ridley scott they both like i mean all three of them released a movie that they had shot like earlier in the year it was like basically like um spielberg had like filmed the post like that summer and was releasing it that christmas similar to like eastwood with the mule like both shot in summer and all the money in the world up yeah. until the week before because of the Christopher Plummer stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the geriatric Olympics. Like, like I, I wonder like if you made it now, they're all still doing it. <laughs> yeah. Like Scott is just like, I made what two movies during COVID. Yeah. And he, yeah, I mean, that's, and like, he's like 80, 
two or something. It's really not that much different than Clint. Cause I mean, I think his movies too are gonna, like it's, it's, both of them just seem like bigger productions also than the meal or than uh crime Macho, like just more people around and stuff though. I think he, I think his were filmed in uh, Europe. So they obviously had a better COVID situation going on than we did. From my understanding, like the last duel, it was like, they had already started shooting like half of it or most of it. And then COVID happened and that shut down production for a couple months. And then I think he did whatever he did he could to get the last bit of footage and then moved on to House of Gucci, which shot entirely during COVID. Hmm. Interesting. So as usual, I want to thank uh, Josh for joining. Hopefully he's here talking about a Clint Eastwood movie when Clint is just, you know, pushing 100. That would be something. <laughs> uh, do you have any social media you want to plug? Um, I, I got like a photography account right, Brown right, right. Collective on Instagram. That's about it. Yeah. As usual, I'm Josh Turnovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast email is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. Send any feedback those ways. Coming up next, I am actually uh not really sure uh what the next episode is going to be. Just still having some scheduling stuff, but we will have uh something for you next week. Uh, So again, thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.